It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Carlos, professor of forensic psych, and your host. A very special interview today because I actually have some of my class, my students are with me. Uh, you can't see them, you can't hear them, but they're here and they're allowed to uh, ask questions, which is great. Uh, so I can't wait to see questions they have. If they have any, we'll find out. But what we have today, we're going to be talking about serial murderers. That's right. We're going to learn about serial killers, but not only that, we're also going to learn about the victims which is what I, why I like this quite a bit. There's a book out there written by Professor Eric Hickey called Serial Murders and Their Victims. You can find it on Amazon.com, 7th edition. Highly recommend it if you're interested in this topic. It's a great, great book. So let's not waste any more time, and welcome to the show, Dr. Hickey. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Carlos. You mentioned that uh, we can't hear your students, we can't see them. That kind of sounds kind of sound like stalking to me. <laughs> yeah, I guess it could be. <laughs> yes, folks, when you hang around with this dark stuff for so long, you get kind of a we do have a sense of humor. Yeah, <laughs> jaded, yeah, a bit jaded. Huh? A bit jaded. <laughs> Let me ask you this, uh, Professor: Why would you write a book like this? It's a well, dark topic. I, I've always been interested in violent behavior, and I worked uh, for a few years in a state hospital for the criminally insane. Oh, did you really? Yeah, and when I was released, uh, I mean, when I escaped, uh, whatever I did, uh, I went and started my career in Georgia as a professor and was interested in multiple homicide. And so I decided to maybe do some research. Wayne Williams was caught that summer back in 81. And uh, I got involved with that case and decided I wanted to write more, research more of that. And, and uh, ended up not only writing an article or two, but wrote this book called Serial Murders and the Victims. And, it launched my career, so I've been really happy. I, I keep it up because it's a great, I think it's a really interesting book, very dark book. It's actually very helpful too, I'm sure, for a lot of law enforcement. Yes, it's used by, it's used in different universities, and it's used by uh, law enforcement for investigations and so on. Man, this isn't an interview by your mind, but I am curious, didn't it bug you reading about this stuff all the time? No, not really. No. Um, I, I think some people just kind of, you know, it has their own fields of interest. And for me, it's just, I'm very objective about it. I don't get spooked by anything like that. I, besides, I, I have close friends with Smith and Wesson and Glock and all those friends. <laughs> but but I, I, I never worry about that ever. I, I would rather interview a serial killer than uh, do a lot of other things. I mean, it's a very interesting interview. So I never That's one thing. Yeah. Folks, I think you've interviewed over a couple hundred of them, 400 something? Oh, no, no, no. That's, I, I've researched. <laughs> I've researched uh, over 800, but I've interviewed a couple of dozen. A couple of dozen. Okay, okay. So you researched over 800 research. Okay, I didn't think there were that many around. Um, oh, but you're talking about years and years of research of you know the serial killers, right? Decades. Yeah, see, they go way back to 1800. It may even a few years before that, but I that's why I started my research was from 1800 up to the present day. Um, let's do this. Let's go ahead and define what a serial killer is. Well, serial murder is interesting. It's killing more than two people over a period of time. Um, it used to be three people, and then uh, several years ago, 
uh, we met with the FBI, a bunch of researchers down in San Antonio, and decided that maybe they, we all decided it might be best if we lowered it to, to two in order to catch some guests getting warmed up to the idea of killing. And, but that was a big mistake uh, looking back. Uh, but in, in any case, it's two or more where there's a pattern starting to develop. The problem is it, it pulls in a lot of people with only two victims that really are not serial killers under the idea of what is a serial killer. Someone, most, well, two thirds of serial killers are sexual predators. And a lot of the guys who were getting pulled in weren't sexual predators, they, they, they robbed a bank or something, someone dies, go to jail, they get out, they get in a bar fight, they kill somebody, but they're not serial killers. So uh, we, we're gonna have to go back and then change that back to three. I think that would be my recommendation. But, Okay, so yeah, that's, that makes it complicated, like you said. So that makes me think the first thing is there might be what you hear a lot in the criminal minds world, the TV show, the signature. Is that something that can, how would you say, start you to get interested in that person might be a serial murderer? If they have a signature per se? Well, user signatures are done by, mostly by offenders who are sexual predators. Um, we, do have, we do have some who provide signatures who are, are non-sexual. Um, and so obviously signatures vary and they, they can be verbal, they can be written, they can be a physical, they can be taking trophies or souvenirs. There's a variety of things can, can happen as a result of souvenirs. Souvenirs are something that people, uh, I mean, souvenirs, signatures are things that people do because they want to fulfill a fantasy, whereas the MO uh, is the, it's done in order to commit the actual crime. Sometimes there's a blending of the two. Yeah, and the MO is another thing I guess you guys will be looking at to see if there's anything you can see, that uh, some kind of pattern there too, right? Sure, we look for patterns. Um, and, and keep in mind, as, as in my role as a criminal psychologist, uh, my role is not to solve crimes. I mean, if I, if I actually do, that's wonderful. But my job is to assist law enforcement so they can solve the crimes. They get the credit. I get the paycheck. That's fine. <laughs> but, but really not my, I mean, it's nice if we can, but my job is to be a different set of eyes help them think differently about the case. And I think over the past 30 years, we've seen a, a great change in attitude toward criminal profiling because now there's real science behind it. Uh, we see FBI and, you know, it used to be, they didn't have a behavioral science unit. Now there's six of them and, and they focus on different areas of crime. Uh, they used to have associate degrees. Now they have, some of them have PhDs. So we've really seen a huge change in that. Uh, as you know, my, my wife works for the Bureau as well. And she's a victim specialist for the FBI. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and she handles all the victims of federal crimes, uh, whether it's kidnapping or human trafficking, bank robberies, whatever it might be. And so she travels throughout different parts of California, sometimes other other locations. Um, and you know they've and that was that came along about maybe 15 years ago. They started doing these victim specialists, uh, but they're on the investigation team as well. So I, I really am impressed with law enforcement, not just the FBI, but other law enforcement agencies who are using more modern techniques and are becoming more educated about criminality, not just crimes, but also about criminality. That's interesting. We're going to get to that, too, because I found that interesting part of your book was the victim component of it. Have, let me ask you this. That now, we kind of define serial killers, and I want to delve a little bit into the mind of them and um, maybe dispel some of the myths that we've heard. Um, so let's start off with that. What can any myths that pop up in your head? I know I interviewed Professor Keel from from New Mexico. He wrote a book called The Psychopath Whisperer. Um, it's a fascinating book. Do our serial murderers typically psychopaths? Is that something that is good? Well, th th there's a misunderstanding about that. Um, and Robert Hare talks about, you know, maybe 1% of the population are psychopaths. But what, he, what he's meaning by that is there's a, a spectrum. And so you might have... Uh, a lot of sociopaths, and, and those sociopaths are psychopathic, but they're not true psychopaths. A true psychopath on the hair scale would be like a 30 or above. So like Ted Bundy's a 35 on the scale. Oh, wow. Uh, but some, but so we, uh, true psychopaths have no emotional connection to the victims in terms of empathy or, you know, sociopaths often, they often love their moms. Uh, but they're impulsive. They don't learn from their mistakes. And so they have long histories of criminal behavior. Uh, whereas a true psychopath often doesn't get caught, at least not right away, and they blend in better. They're social chameleons. So when we talk about understanding psychopaths, um, 
Uh, yeah, some of them are serial killers. There, there are some, but, but most of them are not. In fact, the FBI thought for many years that probably 9% of serial killers are psychopaths. You would be intuitive to think that makes sense. But the truth is, we've done some research recently and published it in the Handbook of Psychopathy, second edition, and we examined uh, like 20-some uh, serial killers, well-known serial killers like well, Jeffrey Dahmer and those types of guys. And we, we discovered that maybe 25 to 30% max, maximum are true psychopaths. The rest are more sociopaths. It doesn't mean they're not predators. It just means that they behave differently than a true psychopath behaves. Um, I mean, you take Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. Whereas Ted Bundy is a 35 on the scale. Jeffrey Dahmer, who killed and cannibalized and ate 17 people, he's a 23. And, wow. and if you look at all necrophiles, because Dahmer was a necrophile, if you look at all these necrophiles, who are serial killers, either they, they kill people or they, but they're sexually involved with, their, with, their, with, their, with the corpses, all of them fall below a true psychopath scale. They, they're all um, between 18 and 25. Do they have other psychological Oh, absolutely. Oh, they have patterns? Um, <laughs> absolutely. They, you know, Ed Kemper, all those guys, they have all kinds of problems, but they're not, because they have attachments. They still love their moms. Uh, they, 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 they do have emotional attachment, and you know, they tend to be very honest when they're caught. These, these necrophiles are, because they, they, they are involved with people, even though they're dead. Whereas a true, psych, well, a true psychopath, they have no interest in any kind of human connection other than most true psychopaths, when they're sexual predators, are very sadistic. And so they, they get off on the suffering of the victims. So the serial murderers then, I'm trying to, look, I'm trying to figure out the patterns. Um, do they have any common themes in regards to mental health issues? I mean, delusional, schizophrenic, major depressive. So, yeah, so let's separate this out. So what you're talking about are people who are mentally ill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these guys are not mentally ill. They're, they have mental disorders. Okay, so then in the DSM, we talk about mental disorders, um, whereas mental illness, like schizophrenia, uh, hallucinations, and so on, psycho psychosis, we, there's medication for that. There's, there's treatment for that. But to be have a personality disorder, that's not you, you cognitively you think clearly, but you just think the wrong things, and and so it's I mean, I'm simplifying this, but so there's not they're not mentally ill, they're not insane under law, they are they're very sound mind, they're, they're predators. So we often see uh, all of them have personality disorders of some sort. Um, they're, they're all anti, for example they're all antisocial, um, but they express it differently. Some are able to control it more and use it. To their own advantage, others more impulsive, like like sociopaths. But uh, oh yeah, they're they're not, not normal. I mean, you and I would rate, well, maybe you, but not me so much, maybe. But uh, I mean, on the scale, on the hair scale, most people are between a four and an eight. And then there's occasional criminality, but when you get into the sociopathic range, you're talking about eighteen and up, eighteen to twenty, twenty-nine that range, um, and that's people who are into criminality. Uh, not, they don't just cheat their taxes once a year. These are people who are very antisocial. And then you, above that, you get true psychopaths who are, you know, they're, they're very narcissistic. Uh, they're very much into themselves and, and controlling other people. So, um, and, and they have a skill set. What differentiates differentiate the true psychopaths from the sociopath is, the, is their ability to control, is to manipulate people and control them. Mm. Um, they, they have a skill set far superior to most people and so when you meet one uh they tend to manipulate people into the under their control um and, and they're very nice they come across as very nice people but the truth is in the end <laughs> you're gonna be in trouble if, if well, you're I, one. I remember reading about bundy doing research on him and he was quite glib uh a lot of people but, liked him <laughs> very very glib a superficial charm he was an, uh, no empathy uh you know, it's interesting when you, when you look at the, at the um, hair scale, all the, type, all the factor ones are really the tools of a psychopath. The ability to be able to lie and manipulate and control people, no empathy, no remorse. These are all tools of the psychopath, whereas the factor twos on that scale are all the deficits of a psychopath and uses the tools to, con to conceal his deficits. So it's pretty fascinating when, when you start to break it down. So clearly when in law enforcement, when they're interviewing someone, if someone's psychopathic, that's one thing. If they're true psychopaths, that's another. 
if they're just sociopaths, even that's another. So that the way we do interviews, uh, we're trying to tweak that, trying to educate people that there are different ways to interview people. And if you try to use the, like the read technique to go in and interview someone who is a true psychopath, you're going to lose immediately. Um, in, in fact, my money is always on the true psychopath when it comes to interviews because they're so good at manipulating. Now, I have seen some really good law enforcement guys do a great job in interviewing and, and are successful. But um, you can't just walk into any interview without preparing and not knowing who your subject is and then get in trouble. I mean, it's, it's amazing what can happen. And folks, uh, he was referring to Reed as an interrogation and interviewing company. They've done it, consultants, they've done it for many, many years. You can find an interview, actually, ironically, I did with uh, Joseph Buckley from the Reed uh, interview company. I actually didn't ask him about psychopaths. I should have. Uh, if you want to see that interview, folks, you can also find that on Inside the Badge, uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, Dr. Hickey, oh, actually, this is for my uh, students and for everybody in the general population. You don't want to diagnose immediately because you see two or three characteristics that you think the person has and you think, oh, they're psychopathic. There's really a criteria and a list that you have to check off and uh, to be able to qualify want to say that. Isn't that about right, Dr. Hickey? Well, that's true. In fact, let's go back to what you said. We do not do, we don't do diagnosis or diagnostic. That, that's what clinicians do. We do, we do assessments. We, do, we assess the case. We assess the individual. We do psychological autopsies. We gather all the information we can about a suspect. I say we, I mean, law enforcement does this. And, and so when they do that, then they can do a better assessment of how to approach this person, how to interview them, what kinds of personalities they might have, and, and so on. So it, it, it is a, an involved process. Again, most crimes are pretty easily resolved, and um, that mo most homicides are resolved within the first two hours. I mean, they're, they're pretty quick. You have kind of a pretty good idea who, who's done it, because most of them are, are domestic. Mm. But some of, these are, some of these can go on for, for months or years you know, before they're actually resolved. So, uh, again, there's a lot of mythology about criminality and, and who commits the crimes, there's, there's a small group, relatively small group of people in the United States who commit most of the crimes. And they resolve in and out of prison constantly. Um, was it 15 or 20 percent or something? Yeah, 15 percent. Uh, it, it, it might be that, uh, if, if that. Um, so I mean, lots of people have committed crimes for which they could have been arrested, but they didn't get caught. Uh, I suspect some of your students are like that. I mean, it's normal. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, but we don't consider ourselves to be criminals. And, and uh, you know, the truth is we're, we did something once. We're not going to do it again. Uh, we learn from our mistakes and we're sorry and we have contrition and so on. Uh, whereas a person who develops a criminal personality, uh, being antisocial is who they become and they, they embrace that. And so as they go down that pathway, it's pretty hard to come back from that. Some people do, but it's pretty hard. Um, People who are sociopathic uh, do not become psychopaths, by the way, because it's an issue of criminal experience, intelligence, and skill set to be able to manipulate people. So these are all factors that we look at very carefully to see where they would fit on the scale. And, and the more we know about offenders, the easier it is to kind of figure out who, who they might be in terms of personality, what's the best way to approach them. Um, so um, let me ask you this. What are some of the things that you discovered in all your research about serial murders? Some things that stood out to you like, boy, I didn't expect that, or I did expect that. One's calling you right now, I think. Well, I get a call from a serial killer pretty much every week now. I have an offender who calls me from prison, killed little girls. Um, yeah, I interviewed him many years ago, and we're back to talking again after all these years. But I'm sorry I got distracted. Your, your question was about... <laughs> As, uh, so I don't mis misanswer this. Um, yeah, the question was, uh, what things did you discover in your research with all these serial killers that you've studied that surprised you? Because you've analyzed the cultural factor, the historical factor, religious factors. What are some of the things that uh, stood out for you? Well, serial killers exist in all societies. They may, they may manifest themselves differently, but they in everywhere. I've looked at maybe 50 different countries, and, and they're always there. Um, they, may, they might use different weapons or modalities in killing or you know they might rob them more than others but the truth is that we have in all societies uh, both men and women are serial killers not just men and, and in, in American society we have about 15 percent are, are female and uh, and they're just hard, a little hard to catch because people don't think of them as killers because they use poisons often they're, they're nurses 
or they, they're stay-at-home killers, they kill their husbands. So no, people don't follow them and track them as easily. So they might go as longer, longer than men uh, uh, committing crimes. So that, that, that was always interesting to me. And then, of course, the part of my work now that has developed over the past 20 years uh, is in the area of paraphilia. So I didn't know a lot about paraphilia. I worked in a sex offender program. And, you know, paraphilia is, of course, sexual gratification through bizarre imagery and, and or acts. And so when I go into this, I started going down this rabbit hole. And, and so I ended up doing this book, just came out last year, on um, two years ago, on necrophilia. Um, because I was oh, very wow. much interested in, in the dark side, um, but how, pe how some people, and about 10% of American males get involved with, with paraphilia, and about half of that, maybe only 5% are criminal paraphilia. So I, I don't really care if somebody wants to have sex with a doorknob, that's their business. But if, if it's a crossover, in other words, if they, if they want to go into someone's home at, at night and do that, then I'm interested because it's, you know, it's without consent. And so there's hundreds of criminal paraphilia that we research, and some of them are what we call preparatory paraphilia, that prepare people to advance to more um, violent paraphilia. So there's lots of things like peeping and voyeurism, exhibitionism. Nobody gets hurt. It's a crime. They're all crimes, but nobody gets hurt physically. Psychologically, of course, it can be some damage. But some of those people will then will progress to more invasive types of things and harmful things to children, to women, to other men, and so on. Now, is there a difference, did you find a difference between a serial killer who, who killed children compared to somebody who killed adults? Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, when we think about that, I, and, and I spent a lot of time interviewing these kinds of people, and you wonder, well, why would somebody want to kill, kill children? Well, some offenders are, are misopeds. Um, it's a, it means a person who uh, hates children. They're very sadistic towards children. They want the children to suffer and to die. So they're the ones most likely to abduct children and to kill them. Um, whereas we have lots of pedophiles out there that don't abduct children and don't kill them. Uh, they just, you know, they're sexually involved with them, romantically involved. And there's all these child molesters out there who, who just want to abduct children for sexual purposes. They don't have any attachments as kids. Uh, but then there are child molesters who are what we call misopeds who are extremely dangerous because they're more likely to abduct and kill them. So I, as we spend our time researching into paraphilia, we unearthed a whole lot of information about these types of offenders and we a lot of misunderstanding about these types of offenders. Who's more likely to abduct and kill them, for example? Um, and so that's been probably the past 25 years that I've been focusing on that more and more. Um, but I'm, I'm off on a tangent now. I know I'm off on a tangent. I get to in that. Um, but you were asking me something else. No, I think you answered it with, well, well, I asked the difference between a serial killer who kills children and one who kills adults. What would be the distinguishing factor? I mean, uh, how, how do you reconcile that? Well, there, there are those, um, the ones who killed children have uh, a, usually a purient interest in children, but a very sadistic one. Um, those who kill adults have never had an interest in killing children. Now, there are serial killers who kill both children and adults, depending upon opportunity. In fact, I was surprised. Um, that many of them actually have killed both adults and children. Usually we see them as separate, as separate kinds of targets, but um, we're starting to realize now that actually they, they do cross over and sometimes just because of witnesses or uh, like Ted Bundy, for example, he killed young girl, he killed an 11-year-old girl and he killed a 14-year-old girl. He also killed adult women. Um, he crossed over, so it wasn't just about their age, it was other things he was interested in doing. And, and it was a sadism, it was a, it's the rage that he felt and opportunity to have access to children, access, access to somebody. Um, like I was interviewing this fellow recently and, and I remember that case because he, he said, I, was out, I went looking for someone to kill today. I said, today I went looking for someone to kill, an adult woman. I tried her, as she drove up, he came to stop son. I tried the car door, but it was locked and she drove off terrified this, this strange man was trying to get into her car. I was so angry about that, that I went looking for someone to kill, someone else to kill. And I came across these two 11-year-old girls, and I killed them both. Mm -hmm. So it was an opportunity, I guess, on that one. Yeah. More so than, than that's terrible. Folks, if you have any questions uh, for Professor Hickey, please go ahead and use the chat box on the side, uh, and you can ask your questions there. Don't be afraid. 
so on the serial killers, I'm going to do a demographic uh, flash round, I guess. Did you see any patterns in regards to, we talked already about mostly male, anything in regards to age? Well, they vary in age. We, we see a lot of them as, uh, well, gosh, they come in all ages. They do. You're probably going to find most of them are going to be in their late 20s or 30s, but we see them in their 40s and 50s as well. Um, Obviously, the older they get, the more difficult it is. But we've had show killers who have killed for 30 years uh, who've never gotten caught. And so, but they age out eventually. Um, So it's something that goes along the line of the criminal justice uh, maxim that usually criminal activity is between 18 or 17 and 20 something, and then they kind of phase out in their 40s, but not really to serial killers per se? Not, not for serial killers. They, because, they're, uh, because they're homicidal, they, they want to kill people, uh, they're quite capable of doing that in their 50s and 60s. So they'll age up more as they get older like that, more in their 60s. Um, and, and we've seen juvenile serial killers as well, um, 15, 14, 15, and 16 year olds who have become serial killers, but not a lot. Just, you know, it takes them a while to develop into one. Uh, but some start early, early on, but most of them don't. I see. I think we have a we have a question. We have a question. Wonderful. How about? Uh, yeah, we do. It says, uh, "Don't worry about that, Latoya." Did we discuss the environment contributions? Does poverty play a part as well as race? Hey, you're beating me to the punch. I was getting ready to ask about ethnicity, um, and I'll ask you the other two questions as well. well. You can see the questions too, Dr. Hickey, but I'll do it for the audience who's, who does not see the chat. Um, okay. First question up. Uh, Let's go race. backwards with theirs. Let's go with race and ethnicity better for me. Okay. You see any well, patterns there? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, when you think of serial killers, you could probably name 15 or 20 serial killers, and they're all white. You might be able to name one or two blacks. But the truth is, given the FBI definition, over 50% of all serial killers today are African American. 50%. And that's because that's because we changed the number down to two. Okay, a lot of minorities got pulled into that. They're not real true serial killers. And that's why we have to pull it back up to three and dislodge all those who really don't fit the pattern. Because before, when I did my research, as I've been doing my research, it's always been, it's been fairly high, but it's always been around um, 28% are African-American, around that. That's pretty uh, high. I never thought it was that high. Yeah, right, it's higher than the general population. Uh, it's true. Um, but that's much more real, realistic. And of course, I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that uh, probably poverty, not probably, poverty does play a role here. Um, you don't see too many wealthy uh, African-Americans or wealthy whites in, in serial murder. It's about people without opportunities, um, a, a lot of abuse at home, a lot of broken homes, um, a lot of problems that, that go on. And, um, and we could probably fix a lot of that if we, Get rid of domestic violence and get rid of poverty and those types of things. How about the um, Hispanics? You know, we do see Hispanics, uh, not as many as you might think, uh, but in more in more recent years, we've seen uh, several Hispanics, but they still are relatively low. They would probably be number three on on the scale: whites, blacks, and then Hispanics, and then Asians after that. You know what? This is kind of an off for our question. Don't worry, Latoya. I'll get to your questions as well as Abdul. I'll ask yours as well. But um, it came to my mind right now: the hitmen, because they would meet the criteria of three. <laughs> um, oh, right. They have a similar mindset, do you think, or not at all? Is it because it's you, mean, you mean uh, you mean Kalitsky? Yeah, like yeah, because he wasn't the Iceman. I think it was called. Or yeah, something. the Iceman. So he doesn't count. I mean, I mean, he doesn't count as a serial killer, even though he was serial. He did it. He worked for somebody. I mean, he mean, it was organized crime. He got paid yeah. to do it. And, you know, he was sadistic and he was cold and he was probably psychopathic and he was psychopathic. But to fit our group of serial killers who act by themselves, for themselves, or sometimes with a, with a partner, um, no, he doesn't fit that criteria. So uh, even though he was a real killer, absolutely. He's like organized crime figure. Yeah. Something else that was interesting to me, I saw a lot of relationship between criminal activity and um, traumatic births, uh, substance abuse during pregnancy, uh, anything done there at all that you saw? Well, there's always been looking at, at uh, you know, the child that's damaged in the womb, um, yeah. and obviously they're at greater risk when they are damaged physically in the womb, uh, or there's a lot of psychological trauma to the mother while in the womb, and, and so that can increase 
the, the, the possibility of becoming uh, a violent offender. Um, but I, I'm a 30-70 split kind of person. I think 30% of who we are is about biology and genetics. And the other 70% is about nurturing or, or the lack of nurturing. So when we have someone who um, is abused in childhood, during childhood, those first three or four years of childhood, um, and, and you know, Dr. Dutton talks about this in his work on, on called The Batterer. When you have a situation where you have a, a father who's battering his wife and shaming the boy, and the mother can't protect the boy from the father, and the boy cannot protect the mother from the battering by the, by the father, and the boy is being shamed by the you have a 99% probability that boy will become an offender as an adult. And he's right. Uh, yeah, 99% problem. So an offender, have, not a criminal, not a serial killer, just an offender. Right, right, an offender of some sort. So can we reduce violent crime? Absolutely. Um, we have an obligation to do that. Will we get rid of all of it because we reduce, reduce violence in the home? No, but we'll reduce a lot of it. And I, I think that's really critical. Um, you know, we, we really have missed the mark sometimes. We, we usually focus on domestic violence so much. And then it kind of got old and people just, uh, for some reason, people started thinking, oh, let's try something else. So they moved to human trafficking. Mm -hmm. uh, but domestic violence has never gone away. And, and it, it's, it's um, horrific uh, what, what the damage that people do in their homes, both men and women, um, and then, of course, the children. We just finished a study. Um, I worked with some folks uh, at Walden and uh, Dr. Kristen Beyer, and we just did a study on filicide, on mothers and fathers who kill their children. So we, we compared 100 mothers and 100 fathers who each kill their children independently. They did it by themselves. Uh, and we were kind of, kind of comparing, you know, what are men different than women and what are the motivations? You know, we, we know that men are much more interested in relationships and when they, when they go bad, they're more likely to kill, especially when the, when the child is under the age of seven. When, um, but for the mothers, um, it's about um, depression, protecting the child, uh, hopelessness and, and emotional instability. So there's uh, some real different factors and, and both of them can, can be addressed uh, through you know, proper education, interventions and so on. And, and I, I think so our research is, is hopefully being helpful down the road that will help people uh, when they do their trainings that we can help people deal with their emotional problems at home. Absolutely. I'm going to get some of the questions here as they're starting to add up and I thank you folks for doing that. Uh, Abdul asks you, what are the shared characteristics of serial killers in general? I think you kind of covered that throughout the week. Well, I, I, again, I, I, okay, so it's, there is no one profile of a serial killer because some are men, some are women, some work in teams, some work just kill people just in hospitals, some travel across the United States. Most don't. Most of them stay in a local area. I, I think we can say safely that most of them tend to stay in one area. Uh, some stay in one house or they travel, but most of them are in one area. Um, most of them plan things and then look for opportunities. Um, majority are male. Um, majority are, um, well, I say white. I, I think when we redo our research, I think we'll see that, that whites continue to be the majority. I mean, it makes sense in the population. Um, again, 20, 25 to 30% are, are African American. Uh, that's still pretty high, but I, I think, in all fairness, I, I think this is that piece of research even though it's accurate based upon definition, we have to change that because it's just not fair to, you know, it, it misleads people, um, gives, gives a group of people a, a black mark when they don't deserve it. I mean, they, obviously they're not, I, mean, I don't have any, so anyway, we're gonna fix that, 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 that issue so we don't keep suggesting that there's a population of people who have a, are way over the top in doing serial murder. Um, I, I think we, we can safely say that they all have personality disorders. Uh, you don't find people come from happy homes, well-adjusted people. Uh, these, these are all people have issues. Uh, they're not meant, only two or three percent are mentally ill. Ninety-seven percent, ninety-eight percent are sound mind, but they have personality disorders. I think okay, that's uh, Nisham's question. Uh, was, no, no, not Nisham's question. Tracy's question. Oh, I got another one. Uh, Abdul says thank you. Uh, another one from Tracy. Kind of leads up to that. So it's a good way to start off. Are there, child, are there often a childhood trigger in these serial killers? And how often are the killers from a perfectly normal family? You and I have had this discussion countless times. Well, nobody, no serial killers come from perfectly normal families. I mean, the truth is, 
is there such a thing in American society? A normal family. Find that, yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, um, so is there a trigger? Well, it's interesting. I'm gonna branch off here just for a second talk about sex offenders. So often children who've been sexually molested will, will grow up to become molesters. Not, not all of them, but many of them will. And they're, they're trying to deal with those kinds of traumatic issues. And so they do this crime over and over again, trying to work, work through it. And so they become predators themselves. And I, I, I think that when we start to talk about serial killers and what triggers them, uh, they are angry, uh, a lot of very angry people about the issues in their own childhoods, the, the trauma, the, the abandonment, the rejection. Those are very common traits among serial killers, the abandonment, rejection. And, and so uh, you know, they don't have the coping skills to deal with it. You know, a lot of people have been abandoned and rejected as children, as adults, but we don't become serial killers because we have, we have family, we have friends, we have uh, different co physically coping skills that we can handle it, but some people don't. And so they go down a different, different slope. Um, so if they don't resolve those things prior to, uh, to puberty, especially if they're males, you're going to have some very serious problems. Um, for example, I had a, a couple of grandparents come up to me and say, well, hey, we have a grandson who's harming animals and he's, and he's setting fires. And we're very worried about him. I said, well, where is he? Well, he's, he's in juvenile hall. And I said, is he, is he there for harming animals? No, he's there for raping his sister. And I said, what? <laughs> Let's stand back for this thing. And he said, well, doctor, he actually raped his sister twice, and that's why he's there. Uh, I said, well, okay, let's, I'm a little confused about this. But I said, no, no, we just want to ask you a question. Because they were in a hurry to get, to get away, because they really didn't care that much, I don't think. And they were just, I think they, they didn't understand what they were talking about. They said, do you, I quote, do you think our grandson is dangerous? We're looking at the homicidal triad. So, right, so he's raped his sister twice. Okay, I, I said, not only is he dangerous, but it's too late. It's too late to help him the way you should have helped him when he was younger. Um, when those guys go through puberty and then they, they masturbate to deviant fantasies, not normal things that people, guys do, then they're conditioning themselves into some very, very dark places. Um, and it's very difficult to bring them back. When you have someone who has sexual deviance um, and, and violent sexual deviance, and then they get into, uh, and they have a psychopathy, you add that into all the other complexities of a human being, it's very difficult to get down to victim, you know, victim empathy. There's nothing there. Um, you can't teach a predator like that victim empathy. So uh, they, they're gonna continue on until they're finally caught and imprisoned. Let me see what other questions. Great stuff. Dr. Hickey, everybody, the book, Serial Murders and Their Victims. You can catch that on Amazon. And he's got a new book as well on necrophilia. Uh, <laughs> I mean, understand necrophilia. By the way, understand necrophilia makes a great Christmas present. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's give, see. What, give it to a loved one, a family member, or someone you don't like. They'll <laughs> never forget you. Uh, uh, Mitchum. <laughs> Yeah, only read if you, if you really into the dark stuff. Um, I, I will want to say also about psychopaths. Yeah. A lot of psychopaths are not, they're psychopathic. They're not, um, they're not criminals per se. Because psychopathy is about controlling people. Um, true psychopaths, the ones who are really high in the hair scale, they're criminals. Okay, and often, you know, they, they will get caught eventually, but they're, they're good at what they do is they get away with it for a long time. But um, when you get into that kind of parsing it out, uh, there are many people who have psychopathic characteristics. You know, they're CEOs of a corporation, they're, maybe, they're narcissistic, but that doesn't make them psychopath because you have to have a lot of different these characteristics. So it's not easy to say that guy's a psychopath because he does one thing that's psychopathic. I think it's in all fairness, we have to realize that there are many things on the hair scale. You have to, you have to rate a certain number to be up in that, high up in that elevated air of, of, of being a serial killer uh, and being, being a true psychopath. Yeah. Let me see here some of the questions. Nishan wants to know, based on your experience, what are the dynamics between serial, serial killers working with a partner? And if they did, how were those partners, uh, those relationships developed? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, so in my serial murder book, push, push, push. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, why not? Uh, there's a whole chapter on, on, on team killers, people kill in groups. You either have one partner or two or three partners. Um, and, and how those partnerships develop. One thing that we've learned from this research is that there's always one person in charge. It doesn't matter, even if there's only two people on the team, one person is, initiates 
most of the activity. And I've interviewed team killers before, and they're, they're an interesting group. Um, usually, there's, sadistic, there's a lot of sadism that goes on, so the, the leader is sadistic, and the follower tends not to be as sadistic, but, but willing to participate. Um, Douglas Clark, for example, used to kill people down in Southern California. They would abduct, he and his partner, Caroline Bundy, they would abduct people off the streets, uh, kill them, cough their heads, freeze the heads, and so on, and he'd have sex with the heads. Um, but she was the one that wanted to prove her loyalty to him. He's the one that initiated everything. Uh, and he is currently in prison. She's now deceased. That's good, especially since I'm in Southern California. Uh, let's see, Atoya says, you spoke to the motivational differences between men and women. Are there any differences between races? You know, that's, a, that's another good question. I, you know, I'd be very concerned about race because I um, sometimes we, we can fuse racial issues with, with just humanity, what people do. Uh, so the guys that I, I, the guys I've researched who are African-American kill, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of anger, uh, just a lot of anger there. Um, but I also find that with, with whites as well. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, most, most blacks are, are not, you know, most blacks are just wonderful people. <laughs> They're like whites. There's, most people are just law-abiding citizens just want to get through life. Um, I think that when minorities get involved with something like this, this extremist serial murder, we tend to focus on that. Well, look, we have blacks doing it. Well, we also have Hispanics and we have Asians and so on. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think you find, uh, I think you probably find that uh, poverty plays a real role here. It doesn't make people become serial killers, but it provides opportunities for them. So you'd see more blacks um, who are in poorer communities doing it. You might find, You'll find poor whites, but you'll also find more affluent whites. You'll find a lot of affluent blacks becoming serial killers. I mean, it's interesting, but, you'll, but you will find, um, you know, people who are somewhat affluent who are becoming serial killers who are white, um, and opportunity, and so on. So I, I think if we played this out for another 50, 100 years, we'll probably see more affluent blacks who become, you know, traumatized, but they, they, they're still affluent, but they'll become serial killers. And the same with, with Asians and, and Hispanics and so on. I think we're sort of in the middle of this. We saw sort of a decline in interest and in, in the number of serial killers in the past few years. And there was sort of this, well, now we've got DNA and now we can track down these serial killers a lot more easily. Um, that's true. And so a lot of these old guys are getting caught. But now, and I'm going off on a tangent here, but now um, with technology, they're finding new ways to hunt their victims. And I, I think education, you know, people who are very computer savvy, I'm not, I mean, I use computers, but I mean, nothing like somebody who's 20 years old. And so they'll learn techniques, they'll get into Tor technology, they'll learn. So it doesn't matter about race at that point. You know, black, Hispanic, white, doesn't matter. Anybody who can really use a computer well can find victims. And so I think technology and social media is starting to change the face of a murder as well and how they find their victims. So um, they're not all brilliant people. I mean, most of them are just average intelligence, uh, but they're very good at skills, how, they, how they, they plan, they plan their killings and opportunity and so on, all those things. So I, I, I don't want to single out a, a race. I, I don't think it's fair, I, whether they're whites, blacks, or, or anybody else. Um, just we have to be very, very cautious about that because I, there's a lot of mitigating circumstances here behind these, these types of offenses. Yeah, as I'm noticing, I always tell students life is not simple. It's not simple. It's not at all. Uh, my, my students, I mean, I had, I've had uh, very, very fortunate in my career to have uh, hundreds of thousands, literally thousands of African-American students. And uh, my experience is very, very positive because I deal with people educated and the same with whites and so on. So uh, it's a matter of probably the community which you run in, but I run in great communities. So <laughs> I've, been very, I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah. I see Abdul says, thank you, sir. Um, Latoya, I want to get back to that question on all the all pretty similar. Um, I want to go to Eloise's question. Good questions, everybody. Thank you so much for participating. We have about another 10 minutes, I think. Is that okay, Dr. Hickey? 
Uh, I was I was playing another two hours, but two oh, minutes. two hours. Okay. Well, uh, Doctor Hickey, student, just kidding. You <laughs> got to go. <laughs> uh, Doctor yeah. Doctor can you say more on the dynamic of two females, two males, one male, one female serial sure. killer teams? Are there any differences there? I guess. Yes, there are differences. Um, uh, there, when you when we look at two females, which is relatively rare, very very rare, quite rare. Um, I had there were a couple of them in Michigan a few years a few years back now, who they would they would they worked in a nursing home. They would take turns. One would watch the door, and the other would suffocate uh, the victims, the elderly victims. Um, so you get that kind of dynamic. But there's always still somebody sort of initiating the, the contact, the actual crimes. Um, but you find women when they kill, uh, they tend to like say work in hospitals. They often work alone. Usually they work alone. We call them the quiet killers. Uh, I find that uh, we've had groups of killers. In fact, it's trying to release one right now uh, this past year um, out, out of Texas, and he was a, a group of four people who were serial killers, and they were they had a they got into a cult. Usually, when they get larger groups like that, they, they do sort of a, a cult, and then they uh, you know they sacrifice things to certain gods and so on. They just they're not insane. They just do stupid things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but we've had we had a case in California, the two men in California, who has sort of built this mountain retreat and a torture chamber, and they killed over twenty five people, men, women, and children, and tortured. And they recorded the killings and so on. Uh, and one of them committed suicide when he was caught. The other went to Canada, uh, was there for thirteen years before they, they finally brought him back here down to the states. And he's now on death row in California, which means he'll never die except of old age. Wow, that's so. I, I, I'm not sure I'm answering that very clearly. I, I would highly recommend that they read that chapter uh, on group killers, team killers. I have one on on healthcare providers who become serial killers. Absolutely fascinating healthcare providers and, and the kinds of poisons they use um, and what they've done over the years and how they've developed. Uh, that's a fascinating chapter. Lots of cases. I have over 100 cases in the book. Uh, I also have a chapter on um, criminal paraphilia. And sexually becoming sexually involved with the victims and those who do that, about two thirds of serial killers do that. Um, I have another chapter on psychopathy, how they develop into psychopaths uh, or what level they're at. And then, of course, biology and genetics, a whole chapter on that. Uh, developing a serial killer from childhood on up, from the cradle to the grave. Um, it's, so it's, um, yeah, it's a, and of course, there's a, there's a chapter there on international serial killers from other countries. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'll tell you, it's been my passion. I've always wanted to know why. Just like students do, like your students do. You want to know why. And when I was a student, I was always curious, why do people do what they do? And again, not everyone can do this kind of work. I mean, I don't recommend it for everybody, but I think if you have a, a passion to understand human nature and why people do what they do, it's, it's a, a great field. Friends, it's a great field to get into. Um, I, I, I work for Walden University in a, in a doctoral program in forensic psychology. And um, we have former FBI, we have current FBI there, we have uh, criminal psychologists like myself and uh, clinical forensic psychologists. And, and we are really focusing upon expanding a program that, that gives all kinds of opportunities, career opportunities for students. I mean, it's amazing. It's not just, we don't do therapy. I, I don't do therapy. It's not my area of interest. But there's so many ways you can contribute by, by consulting work and working as expert witness in court and testifying and, and working defense cases, prosecution cases, civil cases. Um, you can never get bored with, that, with, with, with your career. And uh, so it's a, it's a great career. It's a fantastic career. Absolutely fantastic. ask you this here. Uh, the last couple of questions are running out of time, so I have to actually wrap up. We're almost at the hour here. In terms of, this is actually a question I was going to ask you as well. Abdul asked, in terms of clinical, what changes in the brain of a serial killer shuts off his sense of empathy? So that's a great question. Wonderful question. So serial killers, um, over time, uh, we know that, the, like, like for serial rapists, we know that the, the parts of their, of their brains, certain parts of the brains have atrophied. And that's probably because they don't use those parts over time. And so they atrophy in terms of empathy and compassion, emotional responses. They're not using it, so they, they lose it. Could you argue they were born that way? You probably could, but, but the argument is looking at those as children. They weren't that way as children. But over time, because of the neglect, the abandonment, the abuse, uh, those parts of the brain tend to atrophy. So it, it's not a switch. 
it's, it's a process. And over time, you see that process really taking hold of, of an individual. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's no switch that turns it on and off. And you can't, once you're down that pathway, it doesn't come back. There's nowhere to, to return back to normal because it's, that's, your, that's your personality, that's who you are. And, and so it's one thing like in, in, in court, it's very difficult for a true psychopath to pretend that they're empathetic because they don't know how to do that. It's, it's, that's outside their realm of understanding. But they will, they'll pinch themselves, they will um, act like they're contrite and they're sorry for what they've done. But the truth is that behind that mask, there is this person without any emotional attachment to the victims. Yeah. Mm, and, and it kind of reminds me of, um, oh, I lost my train of thought, so it doesn't remind me of anything right now. Um, <laughs> back to my last question here from the student. Abdul says, thank you, uh, Latoya. Uh, this will be the last question uh, we can do, I think. Uh, does education play, this is an interesting question, does education play a part to the magnitude of sadistic thoughts? Example, higher education yields more extensive intricate sadistic playouts. It's an excellent question. Excellent question. I would say absolutely that education does play a role in that when you are truly educated, then you understand a, a things that you didn't know 20 years before that. And your education opens up other doors for you. And so when you do go off, people who do go off that edge uh, can go so many different places. The Unabomber was that way. A very highly educated man, and he's truly got into some very bizarre things. Um, we've seen people in Europe, we've seen people in the United States who because of their education, it gave them access to understanding um, in, in ways that the average person wouldn't get involved. And so I have to say, yes, I think education, for most of us, we become educated, we see the world as how to handle ourselves, how to deal with the issues in life. Some people just use that information, use that knowledge, understanding uh, to become corrupt and become criminals. Um, but we'll never finish understanding the criminal mind and how people think criminally. Um, there is no one criminal personality, but certainly there, we've made a lot of inroads understanding uh, criminality and, and how people function. Um, and, and so we're trying to debunk all the myths at the same time. Again, it, there's, a, it, there's great opportunities for people who have an interest in this. And don't hesitate to give me a call. We'll be happy to hook you up with some great people. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think it's a good way to end it. I think it was a, it's hard to understand the criminal mind. And I, actually, it's hard to say anybody's mind, but thank you very in much. Hour, in one hour, it's a Yeah. We saw in, I do, you know, I'll teach a course in, 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 in homicide for a whole semester, and I'm trying to cram this into an hour. So you, you understand. <laughs> We're just hitting the, just the, the bumps here, just the highlights, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Hickey, for doing this. It's I truly appreciate it. My pleasure to help you out. And, and wonderful to talk to your students, and, and hopefully this will be of some help to you. Yeah, stay, stay right there, Dr. Hickey. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.